This is the Seahawks Draft Show, part of the Field Goals Podcasting Network. I'm Brandon Schultz, and joining me to talk draft today, Rob Staten, SeahawksDraftBlog.com. Rob, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here, Brandon. Good to speak to you again. This week, we want to talk about some of the top 30 visits. We have, I think, 16 now of the 30 that have come out through the media. And one of the things that I'm finding out is that there's a pretty distinct deficiency of offensive guys that have been announced as coming in. And again, this is 16 out of 30. So there could be 14 that we haven't even heard about, or there even could be people that they don't have to use all 30. So, uh, but one thing that I've noticed only four visits on offense, Paris Campbell, wide receiver, Nikhil Harry at wide receiver, Jay Sternberger, tight end from Texas A&M, and then Darwin Thompson uh, running back out of Utah state out of those four names, which one jumps out to you first, Rob? It's interesting because I think Paris Campbell, if they were going to uh, take him, it would probably have to be with the first pick. His stock has risen to the point where he, he is going to go somewhere between 20 and 40, I would imagine. Ran a fantastic 4-3-1. I think he's a really interesting prospect because the Urban Meyer offense is is not set up for downfield throwing. And despite the fact that he had a 4-3-1-40 at the combine, you don't really see him run downfield that often. A lot of it was you know, screen passes and dump offs and sort of extended handoffs to get the ball in his hands. And then you sort of see him sort of weave his way through traffic to make big plays. And he can definitely do that. Um, I think he's a very intriguing player though. His catching technique is excellent. He seems to have good character. I think he's got untapped potential. We've seen Ohio state receivers in the past really excel when they get to the next level, having been kind of bogged down in the offense that Meyer runs. And Michael Thomas is a good example of that at uh, New Orleans. And I think that for me, he reminds me of a Percy Harvin type of player. Now he's bigger than Harvin. I don't think he's as quite as, as sudden and as electric as Harvin was. You know, Harvin could accelerate very, very quickly uh, and was special in that regard. But Campbell ran a faster 40. You know, he's, he's 4 3 one, his long speed, very good. And I think that it may take him a year to get to his absolute best. But I think once he does that and he becomes a very efficient runner of the go route and, and getting downfield and making those big explosive plays downfield, competing for the ball in the air, being able to turn around, catch the ball over his shoulder, stuff like that. I think once he does that, he could be a, a fantastic playmaker. And in the meantime, I think you know, if you're a team like you've seen how teams like the Rams have utilized talents like this. Um, I think he, if, if you were willing to be creative with him and, and have him work misdirection and stuff like that, which is becoming much more of a focus in the NFL, he could be a really dynamic player. So of that quartet, I would sort of single him out the most. But like Jay Sternberger, his, his catching ability is very good. He contorts his body into very difficult angles to make catches, very consistent as a pass catcher. They're not much of a blocker, more of a sort of a, a joker tight end type and a, and a big slot receiver. Uh, like him a lot. I think Inkeel Harry has a lot of potential. This great character. The Seahawks seem to like him because they're bringing him in. I think a lot of teams will like him for his attitude and his upside and his potential. I think his best football will come. And I think Darwin Thompson, just a, just a bit of a hammer, you know, he's a smaller running back, absolutely hammers people, very physical in the running game and could be somebody that maybe it's a late round pick, maybe it's a priority free agent that they look at there, but somebody who is intriguing, not the best athlete, but certainly has got the toughness. One of the things with Paris Campbell that makes me wonder about is I, I see him and I like the speed. And I also think that Terry McLaurin, his teammate, is another guy that really fits the Seahawks type mold. And especially there's one play that really stands out to me. And it's one it's a Paris Campbell touchdown 
But it's Terry McLaurin who's on the outside. And after Campbell catches the ball, McLaurin blocks one guy and then he blocks another guy. And, and he, so he blocks two dudes, puts one of them on the ground and Campbell goes on to score a touchdown. And I watch that play and I think, oh, man. McLaurin, that, that's more of what the Seahawks are looking for is a guy who can really, you know, perform well blocking. And uh, it, but it's Campbell that's going on for the touchdown on that particular play. Yeah, McLaurin has, has really got that all round ability. He's a blocker. He's got special teams value. Um, he is, can get downfield and make the big plays as a as a downfield receiver. I think that he showed very impressively at the senior bowl that he can get open in short areas and can create separation. I think that McLaurin has, has always been a very underrated player. And again, it's it's partly because of the Ohio state offense. So I mean, just to sort of give further evidence to that, um, Terry McLaurin had 35 receptions last season, which is not many at all. 701 yards, 11 touchdowns though. And that kind of symbolizes what you get from the Ohio state offense. You know, Dwayne Haskins is one of the reasons why I've not been that high on Dwayne Haskins. It's very easy offense for the quarterback to pad his stats. You're getting the ball out of your hands quickly. Mm -hmm. You're throwing it to shorter routes that are basically handoffs. Um, he's not being asked to really run a complex high octane passing offense that has a lot of difficult throws into difficult windows. And, but it does limit the receivers because they get the ball a lot of the time at the line of scrimmage or just beyond the line of scrimmage and they're, they're asked to create. So Michael Thomas, who has gone on to become one of the NFL's best receivers with the Saints, um, I think most people would acknowledge that. He's, right. he's a fantastic player, ended up being a second round pick. In his final year at Ohio State, he only had 56 receptions for 781 yards and nine touchdowns. So that's actually quite similar to the production that Terry McLaurin had in the same offense. So that to me sort of is a great example of what, you know, McLaurin could actually go on, not saying that he is Michael Thomas or anything, but you see everything that you want to see for he's a complete receiver. And he's also got fantastic character and he's very savvy with his knowledge as well. You listen to him break down routes and defenses. He speaks very, very well. And I'm just saying that while people may look at the production of McLaurin and want more and feel a bit disappointed there, look at his athletic profile, look at the complete nature of his game and look at how limited Michael Thomas was in this offense. And actually, I think that McLaurin could go on and become a major factor in the NFL. And I'd say the same for Paris Campbell as well. And Campbell actually had a thousand yard season for Ohio State, which is a rare thing, and 12 touchdowns. So he had a major year for that offense. So I think both players have got a great chance to go early and have an impact in the NFL. Well, it's really interesting too. Paris Campbell, I think of as the faster guy, but he was really only slightly faster. A 4-3-140, McLaurin runs a 4-3-5. So both speedy guys, the size, you know, for people who want the Seahawks to take a big, bigger receiver, you know, McLaurin does have a, he's, a, he's bigger than Campbell. He's only an inch taller, you know, 5'11 for Campbell, six six foot for McLaurin. But uh, so someone looking for height, they may be more interested in Nikhil Harry of Arizona State, the, the other receiver that's been in for a top 30 visit. One thing about him, though, the, the Seahawks, we've talked about it in the past, Rob, they always look for the 4-4 speed at receiver. And Harry's close, 4-5-3, but it isn't. It, it's still outside of that, the 4-4 window. Yeah, and look, I think in the modern NFL, I would prefer to look at guys like Terry McLaurin. I think that ability to get open, to create separation downfield on the shorter routes, to be able to do a bit of misdirection, to be involved in sweeps and stuff like that, to be very good at screens and, and provide some, some help on special teams, return, block. You know, I, th I think all of those things are very, very important these days. 
don't see that many. I mean, look at the way that the game's changed. You know, like someone like Antonio Brown, for example, to be the best receiver in the NFL for a, for a period of time. It's not sort of the big, you know, traditional number ones who are having most of the production in the NFL. It's kind of these speedy, uh, quicker receivers that are having a lot of success now, Odell Beckham types that are, that are having it. And I would look at someone like McLaurin and think that he's got the chance, like I say, to be a complete receiver, whereas in Keel Harry... He doesn't create too much separation. I don't think he's going to be too much of a downfield threat. He's got better yards after the catch potential than you would expect for a guy his size. But then I think McLaurin's got untapped potential there. And I would also say that Paris Campbell is somebody that you can move around and he can be like a matchup nightmare. You could line him up in the slot. You could line him up outside. You could have him in the backfield. You could have him doing all kinds of things. You'd have to account for him every single time he was on the field. And I think those types of players, like their, their worth is doubled somewhat compared to a guy like in Kiel Carey is probably just going to line up outside and be a big target. And he's not, you know, amazingly, he's not like, he's not got the, the, the huge speed that DK Metcalf has got. He's not Julio Jones in terms of a big receiver. He's a little bit more back down in the, you know, a bit, bit more average in terms of his athletic profile than somebody like that. So I'd have my doubts about in Kiel Harry, but no one's going to doubt his grit. No one's going to doubt his attitude. No one's going to doubt his ability to come in and really work his tail off to make this a success of it. And I think that's what teams will really like about Unkeel Harry. And he is still a good athlete. He's just not an, an outstanding freak of nature athlete. What did you think about this report this last week by Daniel Jeremiah saying that he thinks that only one guy, one wide receiver is going to go in that first round and that most of these guys that we're talking about are going to be available then at the beginning or toward the middle of the second round? Yeah, I mean, I could see it. It's, it's something that has been talked about throughout the draft process. And early on, sort of before the combine, there was a feeling that there may only be one and that Marquise Brown was the guy that was most likely to be. And I think that's what Daniel Jeremiah has been implying here. So we've kind of gone full circle because then after the combine, everyone was saying DK Metcalf's going to go very early. Uh, people were suddenly pumping Paris Campbell up from like a second round pick into a first round pick. You were seeing a number of others sort of getting moved up. Terry McLaurin's been touted as a first round pick. Debo Samuel had a great senior bowl, good combine. Again, he was getting pushed up there a little bit too. So we were starting to see sort of four or five names at the end of the first round. And I think what will really matter here, and this is the thing we have to pay attention to, is when does the first receiver come off the board? Right. So if if the Redskins take someone at 15, which is possible, they need a receiver. If they find a solution at quarterback that does not involve the number 15 overall pick, they may look to take a receiver. If that happens, then you know, the, the run probably starts a bit earlier than Daniel Jeremiah is predicting. And again, you know, the Seahawks are at 21. If they trade that pick to a team trying to get ahead of Baltimore for the receivers, so if that's like Kansas City, Green Bay, you know, teams like that, maybe Oakland, maybe Indianapolis, mm-hmm. they want to get a receiver. If they move up to 21 and then take one, then a run potentially starts there because then maybe Baltimore take one. You know, Tony Pauline's been reporting that he thinks the Ravens really like DK Metcalf and Paris Campbell. So if the Chiefs jump ahead of them and take one of those guys, the Baltimore take the other one and then two have gone off the board and then you see Green Bay and Indianapolis and teams like that taking receivers there and you see a little bit of a run. If that doesn't happen and you get to the end of the first run, I think the Green Bay is certainly going to be a team that's got to look at receiver this year. They've not taken one early for an awful long time. They've lost Randall Cobb. They've got to get some weapons about Aaron Rodgers. They've not really done much to rectify that. So I think they're a team that will certainly consider it. Baltimore will consider it. Indianapolis will consider it. If they get past those teams and you get into so that early second round then that might be where the run happens. And I think that's what Jeremiah's predicting. Here's the other thing to remember. Indianapolis, yeah, they could take one at 26. They also pick at 34. So they may wait to 34 to make a pick there. Green Bay, yes, they pick at 30. They also pick at 44. So these are two teams that could wait until the second round to get whatever's left of the receiver class rather than taking one 
at the end of the first round. And that would make what Daniel Jeremiah is saying, that would make some sense. One more question before we move on to the defense. Uh, Jay Sternberger, Texas A&M tight end, who, who you talked about, a, a similar uh, athletic profile. You know, I'm just looking at the broad jumps, the verticals, the three cone drills, very similar to Drew Sample from Washington. Between those two guys, which one goes first and which one do, do you like uh, better among those two for Seattle? I think it's a good question because um, I, I could imagine either really going before the other. Drew Sample is the more complete tight end. He's a better blocker. He's a more rounded player. I think that the senior bowl was huge for Drew Sample. He had a terrific time. He was getting easily open against some of the the higher profile safeties like Nazir Adderley gave him a real torrid time in coverage. Um, and Sample was winning all those battles. He looked great in the red zone drills and, and had a fantastic week. He had a decent combine. So I think for that reason, there's a really good chance that Drew Sample could be the first to go. But then you look at Jay Sternberger, and it really depends what teams are looking for. If there, if you're a team that wants to run block and wants to have a you know a guy who can be like a wide tight end, then you're probably going to look at Sample. If you want somebody who's going to act as a big slot and has got just, I, I was really impressed watching Sternberger because he was catching all kinds of passes. He wasn't just running the seam and getting easy little you know quick hitters um, in matchup situations against linebackers. He was running to the outside, he was making catches at the sideline. He was, he was had guys draped over him on coverage, but he would turn and twist his body into very difficult positions to go up and make the catch. Very reliable hands, good catching technique. And found, I'm really impressed with the way that he caught the football. So if you are a team that's looking for somebody who can be a, you know, a 60 catch tight end and be a real factor in your offense and somebody that you feature as a key target, I think you'll look at Sternberger. If you're looking for a wide tight end, you're going to go for sample. I think at the moment, I'd probably give the edge to Sternberger just because of his receiving ability. But then that's because the league's going a certain way and the passing game is very popular at the moment. I could see it that. But Sample's got a chance to go early and, and, could, and both could be gone by the third round. Oh, really? Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, late day two or are we talking day three for these guys? I, I would imagine that both will be gone by the end of, of day two. I think we're going to see a run on tight ends and that will be a day two run. I think it'll start early in round two, maybe late first round. It depends when Irv Smith and Noah Fan and uh, and Knox and players like that go off the board. If they go early, then there's a chance that you know the next group, which will be Kale Waring and Jay Sternberger and Drew Sample and players like that, they could also get bumped up. But I think they'll. I think if you want to get a tight end, you better have got one by the end of round three, because I think by the time you get to round four, you're going to have to hope that someone like Trevon Wesco is still there, Caden Smith still there, and and you're getting into sort of the back end of the tight end class. Well, moving on to defense, this is where this is an area where the Seahawks have been especially heavy is in the secondary. And I have six names down right now that they've brought in for top 30 visits. Corian Ballard, safety from Utah. Sean Bunting, the corner for Central Michigan. Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, free safety from Florida. Uh, Darnell Savage, a safety from Maryland. Derek Thomas, a guy that you had pegged uh, for the Seahawks in your mock draft uh, around the seventh round, the corner from Baylor and Juan Thornhill, the the big hitting safety from Virginia. Which of those names really stands out to you as uh, as a really Seahawks type player? Well, I think that the one that kind of stands out from a Seahawks point of view more than the others is, is Derek Thomas, just because last year it was very evident just sort of watching the combine that Trey flowers was a Seahawks type of defensive back, even though he was working out with the safeties, just his frame looked, he looked like a Seahawks corner. And therefore, you know, we, we, I did several mock drafts where 
put him in, in there and, and said, I think that the Seahawks may consider him as a cornerback. And that's what they did. And so this year I was looking for that kind of body type again. Who is the guy that can be this year's Trey Flowers? Um, who you just from the pure sight um, that you sort of think, yep, that's the Seahawks corner. And that guy was Derek Thomas. He only ran the 40, didn't do any of the drills at the combine, but he just looked like he had the frame that they like. And it's not a surprise at all. He's got him for an official 30 visit as well. Looks the part is a converted receiver. They, they, you know, they've had some success with one of those before with Richard Sherman. Um, would not be surprised if they bring him in to, to try and train up and develop in the late uh, rounds or maybe even as a, as a priority free agent. We'll see uh, where he goes in the draft uh, because he's not got the best tape in the world, but there's something there to work with and the Seahawks could consider him in like the round six range. So I would think that I would probably highlight him as somebody who is most interesting. Um, but the, the one thing I would say is that, you know, you reeled off some of the defensive back names there. There's, there's a real similarity between all of them. Corian Ballard is a safety, really hard hitting safety, but somebody that could potentially move up and play nickel and, and be a big nickel. Uh, Chauncey Garner-Johnson did play nickel for Florida last year and made that as a full-time switch from, from free safety. Darnell Savage has played up at the line. He's not just a, a you know roaming single high safety. Uh, Juan Thornhill did the same, You know played a lot of nickel. And these are all hybrid defensive backs. I think that is the key thing here. I think the Seahawks are looking. You know, a lot of people have assumed Earl Thomas has gone. You know, the fans don't really like Delano Hill and Tedrick Thompson. I think the team like them more than the fans and the media. I think they're looking for somebody who they can use all over the place, whether that's as a nickel, big nickel, safety, competition at safety, matchup. They're going to play multiple safeties, which they did last year with Delano. I think they want somebody else who can do that. And and all of these guys fit that bill, you know, to a T they all do. And there are others like Imani Hooker that they may well visit with, or they may well consider who do exactly the same thing. So there are lots of options here. I think they're looking for a hybrid versatile defensive back. who is a playmaker. And that's the other thing. Juan Thornhill, six interceptions last year, four TFLs. Garner Johnson had four interceptions, nine and a half TFLs. And, and, you know, you look at the, the plays that these guys are making. I think that's what they want. Somebody who's going to take the ball away, tackle, get off blocks, playing at the line of scrimmage, cover well, be a matchup type of defensive back. I think that's what they're looking for. Yeah, and Amani Hooker, one of those guys that they did meet with at the Combine as well. So when you look at these group of names, it definitely feels like this is an area that the Seahawks are going to look. And it's only really a question of do they go this direction early on? And judging by a lot of these names, because, I mean, Savage, Thornhill, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, all three of those guys expected to be, you know, kind of in that range of a late first, early second type pick. I think it's a a distinct possibility. Again, I think that people are are getting hung up quite a lot on the the need to replace Earl Thomas. I don't think the Silks are ever going to be able to replace Earl Thomas and none of these guys are going to be Earl. I don't think they're looking for a free safety. I think they're looking for somebody who can, it's just such an important role these days, you know, just as much as it's, it's a matchup league now and you need to be able to put players into certain positions that you can take advantage. And while the Seahawks want to play quite an orthodox and an old school offense, which is run the ball, play physical, beat you up a little bit in the trenches on defense, they're going to come up against teams that are, you know, there's going to be, it's a copycat league. There are going to be so many teams that have studied the Rams and the chiefs and the Eagles over the last couple of years. And they've said, right, we're going to, and the bears now, we're going to try and play like that. And if, if you're going to come up against teams who do that, you've got to have the pieces on your defense to, to come up against it. And with the Seahawks playing predominantly nickel as their base defense last year, they're going to have to, to find ways to match up against some of these opponents. This is one way of doing it. 
getting a hybrid defensive back who runs in the four threes, runs in the four fours, is highly explosive, has taken the ball away, can sprint and tackle and can and can make hits. You know, I think that it's it's definitely an area that they're going to be looking at. You know, Sean Bunting's another guy who could 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 line up and do that as well. You know, incredibly explosive, physical, good-looking cornerback. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if Washington's Byron Murphy is a player that they consider this as well. He might go a bit too early for them, uh, but he's the best cornerback in the draft, and he's incredibly physical and tough, and is an ideal player to play at the nickel. So I think he could be an option for them too. I'm curious about Sean Bunting because here's a guy when I saw Central Michigan. I immediately thought, well, here's a guy that they're looking at as a, you know, much like Darwin Thompson, you know, as a priority free agent, uh, late, late round pick. But uh, it seems to be he could he could go quite a bit earlier than that. Yeah, he's definitely he's been one of the big risers, really. And it's it was before the combine and then the combine kind of cemented it. He ran a four four two had a forty one and a half inch vertical and uh, people were starting to talk about him. And he's, he's getting a lot of attention as a potential day two pick. So rounds two to three is kind of the range that people are looking at him. I'd be very interested to see how the Seahawks view him because he's got the height. He's like six, four He's like one ninety five pounds, which is there, you know, right in their ballpark. He only has 31 and three quarter inch arms. And, you know, maybe with a, a generous remeasurement when he visits the Seahawks, they could notch that up to 32, which is I think what they did with Shaquille Griffin. But if not, he could be another guy they're looking to play nickel. He's he's very he's a very talented corner that just needs some work, and that's the thing that the Seahawks look for is is that he's he's a cover corner who can can come in and you can work with and develop. And I think that you know it's it's interesting that they're meeting with him, and it's perhaps further evidence of what they intend to do in this draft, which is to find a playmaking defensive back. Well, and I remember, too, you talking about how, you know, the 32 inch arms, it may not be. And, you know, we're talking about a quarter inch here, but uh, wingspan could be a factor in. And that's one that we don't really see in the stats as, as a player's wingspan. But as a you know six one type guy, you know, he could have that type of long wingspan. And and also maybe you know we've talked about trying to fill in that Justin Coleman role is bunting more of a, an outside corner or is he more of in that mold of an interior guy like Coleman? I think with his speed, um, you could make an argument for him being able to play inside. Yeah. Um, I've I've actually had a look at his wingspan. It's 76 and three quarters. So it's nothing, you know, remarkable. It's, it's kind of a, as you'd expect for somebody with 31, three quarter inch arms. So, you know, it's, it's pretty average there. Um, but I, I think that with the speed, and the size that he's got, I mean, he, he ran, a, I, I think, a similar 40 to, to Justin Coleman. Justin Coleman didn't have 32-inch arms. And, and Coleman was more of a playmaker than I think people realize. You know, he had three touchdowns in two years, um, three interceptions. The Seahawks kind of need to replace with that, if, and maybe even get a bit more production from that. You know, the cornerbacks didn't make enough plays last year, and the safeties, Bradley McDougal made some, some interceptions, but Delano and, and Tedrick didn't. So they need some playmakers in that back end. You know, the, the likes of Bunting and, as I mentioned, the other guys, you know, who played probably hybrid safety. I think that's what they're looking for here. And, you know, I, I could definitely see them using Bunting as a nickel and, and working inside. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk more about this idea of replacing Earl Thomas. And one of the players who's currently on the team, who I think some fans tend to forget about a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
going back to that argument of replacing Earl Thomas, I, I agree with you a lot on this, Rob, because uh, one, there's no way to replace him. And two, yeah. another guy that we you just mentioned him, but I don't feel like Seahawks fans think about him enough is Bradley McDougal. And he is going into, you know, I think either he has what a year or two left on his deal. So that could give. Guys like Thompson, you know, a little more time to develop into that free safety type role. McDougal has that ability to play both strong and free. And so I, I do think that gives them flexibility and then it would give them some more depth and, you know, definitely able to challenge somebody like Delano Hill or Tedrick Thompson for that uh, for for snaps in that part. And Pete Carroll likes competition. And I also think that he's one thing that we know about Coach Carroll is he has been exceptional at developing those defensive back positions. And one other thing that Pete Carroll has been very good at is telling the truth. When people ask him at the end of a football season, what are the biggest needs? And he's, he's said in the past, we need to fix the running game or we need to get some touchdown makers or we need to to improve the speed in the front seven and then have gone out and done it. I mean, the speed on the front seven was 2012. They went out and drafted Bruce Irvin and Bobby Wagner with their first two picks. Now he does he's, what he says he's going to do. And when he was asked at the end of the season, what are the big needs? He said, I don't think that the Seahawks have any really. I think it's just about developing the players they've got, adding a, you know some more competition and adding another batch. And I actually think how I would translate what he was saying there is that they were going to sort of make up the holes that they could. So they lose J.R. Sweezy. They decide Mike Yapati. You know, it worked having veteran experience at guard last year. We'll go down that road again. We'll get Yapati, who's got that experience with Mike Solari, which again, it worked with DJ Fluker. And I think they've decided that's the way they want to go. And then when they look at the defense, if Carroll's right and he's saying, look, I don't think we have that many needs. We just have to to keep things going and develop what we've got. Well, you look at the players that they've lost on defense, Justin Coleman. And yes, I know they've signed Kim King and people like that. And, you know, and one of those guys could easily be trained into to play the Coleman role. That's a possibility. But right now they've lost Justin Coleman. They haven't made any kind of big move to replace him. They've just sort of kept the guys that they had before. Um, and they've lost Jamar Steven and they doesn't look like they're going to re-sign Dion Jordan. So what I would look at is saying if, Carroll thinks they're ready to be competitive and he likes the, the guys that they've got. And they've just got to develop them. It's not going to be about replacing Tedrick and Delano and Bradley McDougald and people like that. It's actually going to be restocking. So it's going to be get a defensive tackle to replace Shamar Steven in the rotation, get a base end to replace Dion Jordan, who didn't do enough last year because of injury and get a nickel to replace Justin Coleman. So of the three defensive positions, I think they're going to really prioritize in this draft. It is going to be nickel defensive tackle and defensive end. And then at some point, whether it's Derek Thomas or somebody else, they'll add another cornerback because they always do in day three, you know, round five, round six to try and develop and add some competition for Shaquille and for Trey Flowers. But that's how I would sort of view going into this draft. That's what I think they're going to do. I don't think it's a case of, hey, you've got to replace Tedrick Thompson and Delano Hill or Bradley McDougal. I think it's about replacing the guys they've lost. Well, one area that we thought might be a question going into this offseason uh, was at linebacker, but they're able to re-sign Michael Kendricks, able to re-sign KJ Wright. And now it's very evident, just especially based on their top 30 visits, that linebacker does not seem to be as much of a priority. Uh, Caden Ellis, linebacker out of Idaho, and uh, Dre Greenlaw, the linebacker out of Arkansas, the, the two linebackers that the Seahawks have brought in. Yeah. And, I, you know, you still have to kind of look for the position because who knows what is going to happen with uh, with KJ, you know, whether he's going to play this year and then that's it or, you know, play a couple of years and that's it. You know, Michael Kendricks is on a one year deal. 
assuming that he plays for the Seahawks this year, right. if he has a really good if he has a really good season, he could be in high demand next year and, and maybe too expensive for the Seahawks. And look at the linebacker market's completely exploded with CJ Mosley. And if they're going to end up paying Bobby Wagner 17, 18 million dollars a year, they might have to try and find some savings there next season because you don't want, you know, upwards of 20 odd million dollars invested in the linebacker position. So they may well bring somebody in. Greenlaw's a very interesting player. Ran a decent time when he eventually did run. Um, has got some agility there. I think he was down as one of the best, most surest tacklers in the SEC in uh, in 2018. And that's something that the Seahawks really place a lot of value in. He's a player that I liked. You know, I've watched a little bit of him. I've not watched too much of him. And I could definitely, definitely see them looking at him. Possibly day three, maybe as a priority free agent and, and definitely somebody that I could imagine them having some interest in there. And he seems to have the kind of the size and the length they like as well. I've not had a chance to really study the the Idaho linebacker just yet, but I believe that he ran a very good uh, short shuttle time. And that has been a test that, you know, like the tight end position and the defensive line position, that seems to, to matter a lot at linebacker. So again, it, it looks to me as if they're, they're targeting guys that they can get later in the draft, maybe it's priority free agents who kind of fit some of the, the, the traits that they look for at the linebacker position. They can come in, compete, maybe make the team as a special team of this year. Maybe they can work on them and develop them to be a future starter. Well, and part of the issue is too with this draft. I mean, outside of Devin White and Devin Bush, you know, there's not a whole lot of guys. I'm looking at your latest mock draft uh, in the first three rounds. You have four guys uh, going the, who are, you know, are legit linebackers. You know, that's not including mm. like a four, three linebacker, you know, edge guy. Um, that's that's not a whole lot of depth uh, up top for this position. Yeah, I think it's a two linebacker draft. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd say I'd call it as bluntly as that. You know, once Devin White and Devin Bush have gone, you're going to really struggle to find an impact um, linebacker. You know, I know some people like Bobby Okariki from Stanford. He could easily find his way into round two because of the lack of the options. If you really need a linebacker, like Chargers need a linebacker. So if they're not going to take, they're not going to get either of Bush or White in the first round. So they're looking at round two. Could they look at Okariki? Yes, they could. Uh, Matt Wilson. I, I just the more that I watched Matt Wilson, the more off-putting it was. I thought he was really average in 2018 for Alabama. Now you watch him in coverage; they used him as like a safety, as the deep safety on a, lot, a number of downs, uh, key downs, like third downs and stuff like that last season. And and he did well there. And you actually watch him in coverage when he was uh, in high school, and rivals were watching him and doing stuff like that. He covers like a defensive back, so there's definitely some talent there in coverage. But when you actually watch his tape for Alabama around the line of scrimmage. I thought he was quite poor. So I, I think he's a guy who could last till, till round three. Not particularly exciting. Hasn't really tested at all. So there's, there's nothing to take away from his physical profile to boost his stock. So yeah, I, I'm not enamored with this linebacker class. We haven't had a good linebacker class for a long time. We've just had classes with like two or three guys. And it's the same this year. One of the more interesting points of these top 30 visits Rob is the guys who the Seahawks have brought in on the defensive line. Because you go down this list, LJ Collier from TCU, Rashawn Gary of Michigan, Jeffrey Simmons from Mississippi State, and DeAndre Walker from Georgia. Of those four guys, those are all guys who could, we could see them off the board by pick number 50. And we know the Seahawks only have one pick in those first 50 picks. Rashawn Gary probably going to be off, you know, in the first 10 or 15. So that kind of leaves those other three guys. Who do you see as a Seahawk among those three players? Well, in terms of character and the attitude and the passion that he has for the game, LJ Collier is, is very much a Seahawk, but then in terms of the athletic testing, he's not. 
So it would it would go against what they've done in the past if uh, if they were to take him. I was a little bit surprised that Collier didn't redo a lot of the agility testing at his pro day. He kind of sat on everything, and I was a I was a bit surprised at that and thought that, and I think a few of the, the, the coaches and the scouts were as well um, but in terms of attitude he's there Rashawn Gary is, is the definitive Seahawks defensive lineman but as you mentioned there he's going to be a top 10 pick so he's he's not going to be there for the Seahawks Jeffrey Simmons they haven't taken any of these injury redshirt guys in the past he's got some character issues too yeah well to, just they're, they're bringing Jeffrey Simmons in probably just to you know to be able to see see what they can find out about him because he, he didn't test at the combine obviously because the injury and there's, there's limited information out there. He's a guy who teams have had to do a lot of homework about because of the video from high school. Mm-hmm. And I think they want to get to know him a little bit and, and, and bring him in and meet him. And Simmons is a top 10 talent and he's going to end up going in the, in the thirties probably because of the injury, the knee injury. You know, you referenced the video from high school. A lot of people may not know what that is. Um, Simmons was, I, I, and I don't know a whole lot of the details either. I've, I've seen the video, but it was his sister who was getting into a fight with another woman. And the, the woman ended up on the ground and, and Simmons came in and took a couple shots at her. Is that, is that what you remember? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Um, and there was a lot of talk about whether or not Mississippi State should honor the um, his chance to go and play for them and stuff like that. And they kind of stood by him for the three years since he has been on a, you know, a, a, quite an effort to to re um, repair his image. Yeah. And as and I have to say, you know, as somebody who went into into this sort of draft process, knowing that about Jeffrey Simmons and assuming that the NFL wouldn't touch him, the more and more that I sort of studied and researched and found out about him and watch the videos that Mississippi State put out. Yeah, I know it's been the team and they're going to put him in a positive light. The more impressed I was about him and the effort that he'd made to try and turn his life around and his image around. And and I think the, the general consensus has been that NFL teams are satisfied that he's made amends mm. for that that ridiculous mistake that he made in high school. So, um, so yeah, I think that that it's a shame that he's got injured because he would have been a top 10 pick and and teams will have to weigh up the fact that you lose a whole season of cheap club control if you draft him because you're not going to see him in 2019. So that, that's quite an expensive thing in this in this era of the salary cap. And then DeAndre Walker is a player that, in my first mock draft, I paired him with the Seahawks and, and thought, here's a guy with a length, the tenacity, defends the run well for his size off the edge. Sort of as a pass rusher, very good. There are big plays where he just blasts the offensive tackles. Had a great game against Alabama when Georgia should have won that game last season. Um, it's always good to have a good game against Alabama. And it's kind of the forgotten man of this draft class because he was injured for the senior bowl and the combine. Mm. He's a really good player. And it'd be nice to sort of know his measurements and his testing. I think he could go earlier than people think just because he's the forgotten man. It would not surprise me at all if he went in round two. Wouldn't surprise me at all if the Seahawks liked him as well. He's a gritty, aggressive, violent pass rusher. And um, I like him a lot. Well, I've seen him mocked as high, too, as the New England Patriots at the end of the first round. LJ Collier, one of those guys, you know, you mentioned how on the personality side he fits. It's interesting that they've had him in knowing that he does kind of have that that Seahawks type personality. They met with him at the combine. They were at the TCU Pro Day. They're bringing him in for a top 30 visit for a guy that if they're trying to hide the fact that they like Collier, they're not doing a very good job. No, um, the thing about Collier is that he, I didn't really notice him during the season. I didn't watch many TCU games uh, during the season. And then watching the Senior Bowl, he was one of the huge winners. I mean, he was 
beasting people, you know, some high profile offensive linemen as well. Some of the bigger names that you'd expect to go in the first three rounds. He was hammering them, you know, and it, and it was with speed. It was with bull rush. It was engage, disengage. It was, it was everything really. His hand use, his effort, his aggressiveness, his power it was the complete package. And, um, and then you watch the tape off the back of the senior bowl to say, okay, where's this guy been hiding for the last couple of years? And the tape backed it up. I mean, he could rush the edge. He's not the most brilliant athlete. He could get around the arc. He could get to the quarterback. He could straighten. He was, you know, stunting inside with quickness. He was breaking off the edge as a pure edge rusher with speed. He could do it all. And, um, you know, it's just a shame he didn't run a faster short shuttle because then you could probably pencil him into the Seahawks. But um, they clearly have seen something that they like and, and and they're probably spending more time with him than others because they want to, to sort of say, look, he's he's not the, the type that we usually go for. But with the grit and the tape, how can you ignore him? I mean, he's a he's a really interesting player. And, you know, I'd, I'd quite like to see him lined up across from Frank Clark. I think that would be quite a, a dynamic duo. And, you know, Michael Bennett wasn't the best athlete in the world. And I just wonder if they see a bit of Bennett in LJ Collier, I wonder. Well, uh, the other thing that's kind of interesting is it's Collier's teammates, uh, Ben Bonogu, who has the athletic measurements uh, that are typical of an, <laughs> of an edge for the Seahawks. You know, the 427 short shuttle, the, the 702 three cone, a 40 inch vertical, uh, 1102 broad jump. You know, the vertical, the broad, holy smokes for a, for a 250 pound defensive lineman. The only problem with Ben Bonogo is he doesn't know how to rush the passer. That's, the, <laughs> that, that's a problem that's, for a guy that you're going to have in the, the pass rushing position. <laughs> yeah. It, and it's a shame, but it, you know, the, he was one of the more disappointing players that I watched um, sort of reviewing back after the combine. And he just doesn't, he, he doesn't have anything, you know, his hand use isn't there. Doesn't really know how to rush the art properly. He can't disengage. He never bull rushes. You never see his arms straight and you don't really see the club uh, rip. You don't see anything really. When he makes plays, it's because he's a better athlete. Um, I was I was in a conversation with a you know a valued member of the community who posts quite a lot on Seahawks Straplog about Bonogu, and he, he sent me some clips to sort of pass comment on. And there was one clip where the right so Ben Bonogu he he, was, he wasn't so much a wide nine; he was more like a wide fifteen. He was so wide off the line of scrimmage, he, he sort of was dancing around, and then he settled in a very wide stance. And for some reason, the right tackle takes two steps to his right-hand side and just kind of put himself on an island 1v1 against Bonogu. There was this huge amount of space in the B-gap. And then, so Bonogu's looking at this and he's thinking, I can rush inside, I can rush outside. You know, all I've got to do is win with speed against this guy who is 60 pounds heavier than me and I'm a better athlete and I'm quicker. And all Bonogu did was, you know, fake to the inside, rush on the outside, get round him, got to the quarterback, made a play. And and I'm looking at this and, and you, you know what? You could look at that and say, oh, great athleticism from Bonogu. I'm looking at it and thinking, what's the right tackle doing? Just play inside <laughs> out. He's so wide. How is he going to rush the quarterback from that wide position? Stay close to your guard, cover up the B gap, play inside out. Just ward him off. He's, you know, you've got all the advantage if he's lining up that wide. You should be able to just nail that down. And in the NFL, Bonogu's not going to get that kind of advantage. Tackles are not going to do that. Otherwise, they're going to get hauled off the field and somebody else is going to get a game. And that's the problem. Bonogu's got to be coached from scratch. He's got to learn to do everything from scratch. And the one thing he does really, really well is read and react in space and cover ground quickly. And I actually think, because you see that, you know, when there's any kind of reverses or sweeps or anything to the outside, in space, Bonogu chases them down, does a very good job there, tackles, made loads of plays like that. 
actually think that Bonogu's best role is linebacker. I think you convert him to linebacker at the next level mm. and get him sort of playing that. And I, and I think that'd be a great fit for him. I think he's better there. If you're going to coach him up from scratch, I think he might as well do it at linebacker instead of pass rusher. That could make a lot of sense, especially with uh, those athletic traits. You know, they had Bruce Irvin, who was a, an incredibly athletic guy. He could rush the passer, though. That was one difference. Uh, but yeah, that could make sense in a draft that's deficient of some some really uh, some really solid linebackers. Yeah, and, and I will just say this: that I know that people assume the Seahawks, you know, with their first pick, the best athletes they're going to go for. That's that's the kind of thing they do. Sparked through the roof and stuff like that. That's that's not the only thing. I mean, they they like traits. It's it's not spark. It's traits. It's do you fit what we're looking for at this position? You would never say that Rashad Penny was a freakish athlete, right? But he had great size and was really quick, and he was he had special teams value, like a record number of returns as a, as a kick returner. He would make plays in the passing game and the running game. He was kind of a complete running back who was really quick for his size. So they took him, not a freak, but he had traits. Uh, Paul Richardson, a small receiver who uh, ran in the four fours, you know, he wasn't like he was like a four two, wasn't John Ross or anything like that, but he could get downfield and make big plays and go routes and, and was kind of had that Deshaun Jackson ability downfield. So they drafted him again, traits, not necessarily a freakish athleticism. When they took Bruce Irving, they didn't take Bruce Irving purely because he ran a great 10 yard split and did all the other drills really well. Bruce Irving was the best pass rusher in college football for two years at West Virginia, the best. You know, there was nobody close to Bruce as a pass rusher. Mm-hmm. And that's why they took him at 15. That as well as the athleticism. Malik McDowell wasn't just a great, big, long defensive lineman. He's the only defensive lineman that I've, I've been doing the blog for a decade. I've not seen a defensive lineman at 295 who can rush the edge like Malik McDowell and play nose tackle like Malik McDowell. I've never seen a guy like that before. So he was incredibly unique for what he could do on the field plus his traits rather than anything else. And that's the kind of thing they're looking for difference makers with traits, not necessarily just the best athletes. When I look at Ben Bonogu, he's got all of the, the athletic amazingness that you would want from a player, but he's not a great pass rusher. He's a massive project. His tapes poor. That's not the type of player that they would, would take early. And this is the kind of thing we have to look for here. Look for the great athletes, look for the traits, but production and being able to fill a certain role is also very important. And when the Nichols were talking about taking the ball away, some of the guys we've talked about, Juan Thornhill, Darnell Savage, uh, Chancey Garner-Johnson, Byron Murphy, they take the ball away. You know, they can hit and they can play run defense as well as they can in coverage. These are the kind of things that they're going to look for, not just amazing athleticism. Well, and one thing I should say, too, as we close this out, Rob, is that, you know, you mentioned they do look for unique traits. They also... While they have drafted guys that they brought in for these top 30 visits, you know, they they brought in uh, Shaquille Griffin. They brought in, uh, I believe, Nas Jones was one of the guys from the, the 2017 season. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's quite a few guys that you can look at, especially later on in the draft. Rasheem Green, I guess, last year, I, I think he was a top 30 visit. Uh, Tristan Michael was back in the day. Right. Yeah. Well, and I guess, OK, so he would be one of the the, the top picks. Uh, that they did bring in. But a lot of these guys, I, I think Malik McDowell did come in, but Fetty yeah. didn't come in. Rashad Penny, I didn't see any word about him coming in. And the the fact that we haven't seen reports on them coming in doesn't mean that they didn't. I, I try and point that out quite a bit that, you know, as much as we look in, as much as the media covers a lot of these top 30 type visits, they don't get them all. So they, they could have plenty of meetings of these guys that we just never hear about. 
Yeah, uh, Malik Medal was a he was a very late uh, me. Uh, the, the Seahawks have generally met with guys, you know, right at the end. Yeah. Um, and and, the, and they, I think they saved some visits for the, for the last week. Um, just to sort of get a final thought, you know, maybe can act as a, as a, as a difference maker in kind of like a, a tie or something between two guys. And, you know, last year, two of the big visits and two, two of the big personal workouts that were Christian Kirk and, um, and the running back who ended up in Miami from Arizona state. It was, my mind has gone completely blank. I can't remember his name, uh, <laughs> but he went to Miami, um, it was at Arizona state. Um, but, um, you know, they were, they were those two guys out in Arizona and we wondered oh, whether Kalen or not they'd be a couple of targets. Yeah. Kellen Blige. So we wondered whether or not they would be a couple of targets. So, you know, you, you can't really learn too much from this. The, the thing is, it's interesting more than anything, just to sort of create talking points and be able to discuss the players as we have done today. You know, what is this player bring? Why would he fit in the Seahawks? You know, why might they have brought him in for a visit? But ultimately, there's just as much chance it'll be somebody that they take with their first two or three picks that they haven't brought in, that they want to sort of keep as a little bit of a secret, which they seem to to do with Rashad Penny a year ago. So uh, we'll see. It's interesting. There's a lot of interesting guys that they've not met with who would fit just as much as some of the guys that they have met with. But it's the great thing about the draft and trying to look through the options. And it's very difficult to just pick that one guy that they're going to like, but it's very easy to sort of find 20 to 30 guys that they might like. And that's the case again this year. Yeah, and I have the full list of all the ones that I've tracked that the Seahawks have met with, wh- whether they've met at the Combine, met after the Senior Bowl, uh, brought in for a top 30 visit like we've been talking about today. You know, there's a there's a long list of guys that would take way too long to go through that entire list uh, in one show. So I, I narrowed it down to just the top 30 guys this week. And the one spot that we didn't talk about, Rob, offensive line. Yeah, I mean, I, it does seem a little bit like they they feel like they're probably set there. I mean, your Patty's come in, they've, they've got the rest of the starters. They've still got Simmons and Hunt and Posick and, um, and Fant and the Ohio state offensive tackle. They drafted in the fifth round last year. Yeah. Still there. Jones. So they, so they, they still, I, I think they like the depth and the, and the talent that they've got on their offensive line. And um, I actually think they, they may just avoid that as a, as a draft position this year, unless there's a guy, in the middle or later rounds, they just feel like they've got to have. Well, one thing that I wonder, and I, I could see them taking an offensive lineman at some point, but I wonder if they learned enough from those couple of down years where they went extremely young. They got where they had veterans that they brought in that those couple of years and they got rid of them. Uh, you know, I'm thinking Eric Winston, uh, the guy from New Orleans, uh, who was the, the top guard for them for such a long time, Pro Bowl guy. And they got rid of them before the start of the season. And I'm thinking, geez, what these are, are veteran type talents who have gone on and had success on other teams after the Seahawks cut them before the start of the year. You know, did they learn from that moment that, oh, maybe going with these young guys isn't the way to go? Maybe bringing in some of these veterans, you know, similar to how they have by bringing J.R. Sweezy back, you know, bringing in Yupati. Is it better to go with these veteran guys that you can get still relatively on the cheap, but guys with experience? Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. I think that's exactly what it is. I think that they've learned from being a bit too young at that position. I think that they, I mean, there was a reason for it. I mean, it wasn't that they just thought, hey, let's be really young on the offensive line. You know, they were paying the quarterback by that point. They were paying the running back. They were playing practically everybody on the defense. Doug Baldwin, um, you know, one, one or two, other, Jimmy Graham, then eventually you know, Percy Harvard. So they, they had to find a saving somewhere. And this is the dilemma they'll face 
if and when they end up paying Wilson, Wagner, Clark and Reed, is that they're going to have to find a saving somewhere and they're going to have to be young somewhere and it could be defensive back. You know, if, if for me, if you're going to go cheap and young at any area uh, in a Pete Carroll team, it's defensive back because Pete's the, you know, the, the, the defensive back guru. He can coach these guys up and get production and so often he's done it and replenish the ranks a defensive back, that would be, for me, the area that you would back your head coach to, to be the difference maker there. So I, I think that that could be the, the thing that they do going forward and that they have a bit more of an experienced veteran offensive line, a bit more quality in there. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good that would be a good thing to do. Trust your head coach and his defensive back developing ability, not so much the uh, offensive line coach is what they did with uh, Tom Cable. Well, Rob, really want to thank you for coming back on once again and uh, doing the draft show with me just a little over a week before we're going to get into those uh, first couple rounds. What could we expect at Seahawks draft blog in these next couple of weeks? Um, a lot of stuff. We're going to hopefully do an interview with Tony Pauline this week, um, which people always look forward to. And, and Tony is, is really good, really informative about the draft. Best draft insider in the business. Um, we're going to have more mock drafts, of course. The, the exciting thing for the draft this year is they could go in a, a number of different positions. I think that the last couple of years, maybe it's been a little bit obvious what they were going to do with their first pick, especially last year with the running back. I thought that the running game was always going to be the main focus point. But I think this year, a bit more wide open, lots more to discuss and uh, looking forward to the final week before the draft. Check out SeahawksDraftBlog.com at Rob Staten on Twitter. And if you want to help support the show, you can always go to GetInTheFlock.com, become a member of the flock. And with that... More draft talk next week and plenty of more content here on the Field Goals Podcast Network. 